the start of the sermon, I was planning to tell you a funny story, but I'm not going to. It was about a boy that would pray every night. He'd pray for his sick father or grandmother, his uh, sister who's having trouble in schools and finances. And finally, one night, he turned and said to God, are you listening to me? But I'm not going to tell you that story. Because sometimes humor seems out of place in church, doesn't it? There's some holy places where we don't expect to find it. And I would like to suggest that this particular parable that Jesus told was a story that was humorous. I can imagine those that heard it slapping their knees and saying, that judge got what he deserved. Didn't we choose the right person for the judge in uh, the Scripture reading? An unrighteous, inappropriate person passing judgment for himself and not taking the responsibility that he should. I'd like to suggest if you look at the Bible from the perspective of what is enjoyable, what kind of struck the people funny as really that's what it was. Those that heard the story like the reversal that happened, that the judge who was holding his ground, somebody finally gets the best of this evil judge. Good news. And we like those shows on TV where the person that is disenfranchised finally gets the best of the people that are putting him or her down. Am I right on that? There's another example that I think is truly funny that Jesus did. You know, there was a coin that uh, somebody was asked to show to Jesus. He said, why aren't you paying taxes? He says, do you have a coin? Look at it. And he said to the person that was quizzing him, whose picture is on that coin? Do you remember it, don't you? And the guy says, well, it's Caesar's. And Jesus' response, I think, brought the house down. Well, give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and the things to God, the things that belong to God. This is one of that type of story. But it is also very serious in the fact that the feelings, the expressions, the concerns, the intrigue that happens within the community exists today in our world. We know the story well because we have seen it happen over and over again. So there's this widow. She had an item that needed to be adjudicated by the judge. We don't know who the opponent is. The opponent isn't a part of the story. Even the issue is not part of the story. We don't know whether it was a settlement that needed to come to her or money she wanted from the estate because women were not allowed to inherit in that particular time. It could be that someone within the family who had the responsibility of taking care of her was not doing it. We don't know. Those are possibilities. But it was clear that there was an issue and she needed justice and justice was something that she should receive. It's very clear. And then there's this judge who has no care for God, 
no care for people. For him, community did not exist. Everything was for himself. Sounds like politicians, doesn't it? Looking after what he wants and refuse to hear her. Now, this widow was no, no uh, shrinking violet. She was no wallflower. I think she knew she pursued the judge wherever he went. He was in the marketplace. I need justice. I need justice. He knew her, she knew his address. She was no little old lady with a walker going through town. Those, those folks can be pretty tough too, let me tell you. She came to the place where they held court. We don't know if it was in a building. The tradition back hundreds of years, thousands of years before this, was that the town had a gate that brought them in, a wall that surrounded them. At the point of the gate, sitting outside was where the judge would sit. And people that had a dispute would come to the judge, say, these are the issues, can you settle it for me? There would be plenty of witnesses around in the gate. That's where business was transacted. It could have been there. But wherever it was, wherever the judge went, she was present and crying out for justice. And the judge, who cared neither for God nor for people, refused. But there's an interesting, interesting phrase in the text. I think you should have it in your, um, in your program this morning. He says, I'll give her justice. He relinquishes. So that she will not wear me out. Now, the word behind that is a very interesting word. It's only used twice in the New Testament, not in the Old Testament, only twice. The other time is with Paul, and Paul is talking about shadow boxing or actually boxing. And in the context here, he is, the judge is saying, if I don't give her justice, I will get a black eye. She'll slap me on the side of the face. And he gives justice for wrong reasons to protect himself. Now Luke tells us right at the opening, this particular parable is about prayer. And I kind of struggled with that a little bit. Now, a theme that you find in the parable is justice. Justice is mentioned at least four times. The importance of doing justice, that God is interested in justice. But prayer? Where is prayer in this story? Well, you want to know who's who. Somebody there is praying, and somebody is there answering the prayer. Now, is the judge the one answering the prayer? I kind of toyed with that idea, but recognized that the attributes of the judge were nothing like the attributes of God. No care for people. 
the whole being of God, who is the creator of all humankind, is care and interest in people. This judge could not be the one receiving prayers. God's primary concern is justice. The dominant theme, and we do not talk about this enough, the dominant theme of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, is about justice. Care for the disenfranchised, the widows, the orphan, the aliens. These are all part of the people that have a special place in God's heart. And nowhere does this judge have this feeling in his heart. Not only does Jesus say in the story, this is what he's about, the judge says that himself, about himself. He self-condemns himself in this particular way. And in looking at this, I could not identify the judge as the one who represents a receiving of prayers. Well, what about the widow? She's not that great of a character herself. I can't imagine God coming along and giving me a black eye, can you? That does not seem feasible within the context of what I understand God to be. Now, I could be wrong on that because we are led by our preconceptions, our understandings. But I don't see God necessarily in that category. There's her persistent that God pursues things. And if you look at it within the context of the idea of justice, could it be that the attribute of the widow in pursuit of claiming justice is what God does. Because again, justice is the dominant theme of Scripture. I had a class once uh, when I was doing my uh, last degree at Claremont back in the last millennium. Um, <clears throat> you can say that. Not too many people on this earth can say that we lived in two different millenniums. Uh, it's quite interesting. But uh, uh, we were given about ten words from Scripture. Um, Hebrew words that we were to find and look at the frequency of use. All of these were related to justice, loving kindness, peace. Uh, and we went through and found out in Scripture that every single Old Testament book spoke to the issue of justice. We build theologies with maybe five or six verses from Scripture and say, this is the way God thinks. But it has amazed me that we have avoided the concept of doing justice as a part of the role of the Christian community, of God's people, of God's church, when it is such a dominant, dominant theme in Scripture. And it is there over and over again that tells me this is something God is persistent about. 
And so could it be that the one in prayer is the one that our God in this parable about prayer is the one that is persistent with you and me, the judges, that we need to do justice. We may do it for the wrong reasons, but come around eventually to do it for the right reasons because this is part and parcel as to what God is about. What a different view I discovered this week in this passage that God's persistence with you and me in the communities that we are, that we live, is in this realm of doing what is right. It's a prophet that said, what does God require of us? You remember, it comes from Micah. The first words there are to do justice. How hard it is sometimes for us to do the right things. Is that correct? And so I come to this point to ask the question, how does this happen? How do, how do we do this? We simply need to read the news or look at it or listen to it and recognize we live in a world of injustices. ADRA calls and uh, we respond. As a congregation, you do a great deal of giving to ADRA. I commend you for that. Uh, this is good. Doing justice in faraway places is a part of the Christian responsibility. In proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, that the justice of God is for all of God's people, is something we are asked to do. I think one thing we run away from, though, is justice in our own communities. We can look around at uh, empty pews here. And this is not unusual. It's in other churches. I've been to most of the churches in Southeastern over recent years. A lot of empty pews. That means there's people missing. And I've wondered where they are. I've heard some stories that they will tell about injustices that have been done to them by people in the church. I was criticized. I was forced out. I wasn't welcomed. And we who feel pretty good about ourselves may say, well, that's their fault. You know, they made the choice. But I'd like to suggest that it's much beyond that. As Christians, we believe that God is creator, correct? that what God created was all things. And at the final point of creation, God creates people, you and me. And we're created in God's image. Now, some have suggested that after all of these years, that image of God and people has been near, nearly obliterated. But there's still that factor. 
But the fact that we are created by God and we call God Father means that you and I are brothers and sisters. And those that may not be here in the pews are our brothers and sisters, parts of our family and part of the family of God that are missing. Their reasons for being gone may not be appropriate. But the fact that we are here and we see this, I think, gives us a responsibility to say, where are they and how can I find them? What can I do to make this a place that people are welcomed and part of the kingdom of God and part of God's family? There are siblings. What can we do to bring this about? And so the God who hounded the judge, us, for doing justice, in a sense, hounds us. I want you, for the sake of the people of God, to do justice here. There's some basic things that I think sit with Christianity that are for us to do. Very, very basic. We lost these, I think. When the Samaritan came to, when the, the lawyer came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? A bad question, by the way. Okay, know that that is a bad question. There is nothing we do to be saved except turn and go the other way when Jesus calls us. It is not about what we do. It's what God has done for us already. But what must I do? He turns it back to the lawyer. Well, what do you read? Love God and love people. Jesus says, you've got the right answer. You know, it's nice to know when an answer is correct. There are so many things where we structure in our beliefs that we are not told that's a right answer. This is one where this is a right answer. What are you to do? Love God, love people. We are all part of God's children, God's family. The lawyer didn't like it and said, well, who's my neighbor? Who are these people? So Jesus tells a story about the Samaritan and asks at the end the question about who is the neighbor. And the lawyer doesn't want to say Samaritan because if he did, in the parable, in the story, all the people would have lost it. They were hated people. He had to say the one who showed mercy. And that's the third thing we are called to do. We are called to love God, to love people, show mercy, or can I say it a little clearer? Be kind. Isn't that easier? As a people, as God's people, as God's children, be kind to each other. The disciples were in the midst of fighting. It was the night of the Last Supper, though John doesn't tell us this is where you see the fight. Jesus wants to communicate with them and eventually says, okay, guys, I'm going to give you a new law. It wasn't new. It was as old as time. He says, I want you to love one another. 
I've dealt with enough church fights to know that it's difficult to love each other in a church. We, as family, know how to ring each other's bell. You know what I mean. We know which buttons to push, and we know how somebody in the church will respond when those buttons are pushed. And we sit back and enjoy the scene. But Jesus said to the disciples, you're to love one another. And if you love one another, the community will know you're my disciples. And if you don't love each other, the community can say, you are not my disciples. And so love God, love people, be kind is the basis. Let me give one more argument on this. We're Seventh-day Adventists. And it comes to the very heart of something we hold dear and true to ourselves. When you talk about loving God and loving people, you and I know that this is a part of what is in the Ten Commandments. You have heard it said that some of the commandments are about how I relate to God and show my love to God. And another part of the commandments show how I relate to people and show love to people. So if I'm going to be a person that loves other people, I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to bear false witnesses. You know those things. And so we have, the way we have computed it, four on one side and six on the other side. And I'm going to change those numbers around for you, if you don't mind. I want to suggest that it's actually three and six. And that there's a commandment bridges loving God and loving people together. And that is the commandment for the Sabbath. And I want to suggest that that commandment with the Sabbath provides for you and me a bridge Whereas the family of God, the community of believers, brothers and sisters together, siblings can gather and meet to celebrate the greatness of our God. I don't know if you caught that completely. Sabbath is a meeting ground for all of God's people to come together. A place where justice is clearly proclaimed. That those things that may have separated us are resolved and solved. And it is just not for the believers in God. It's for all people. It's like Paul talking to the Galatians, saying about all people that there are neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither rich nor poor. There's neither Jew or Gentile. There's neither male or female that all come to that plane. And as you look to the commandment and its words, that your children, male and female, that your slaves, male and female, can come together. That even aliens are a part of that community that learn and know the justice of God. Justice is important. 
that we provide within the context, the community of the church, where we are, not just far away, but right here, that those that have been hurt can know that the justice of God is for them and they are welcomed. That our children, our brothers and sisters, can come back and be welcomed and encouraged. That they will find a safe place to be a part of the family of God. It is so hard to do, so easy to say. But this is the nature of the kingdom. And that our children, who may believe things that are different from us, have a place in our church. That our children, who may see things in a way that is hard for us, are not criticized but said, come on, you're part of God's people too. Our young people are leaving church. A statistic I heard just this week that currently about 55% of Americans are Christian. And a good number of those, when they ask their affiliation, would check none. They're not a part of a congregation. They are Christians. They'll believe in God. They'll worship in their own context, maybe. But affiliation with a church that causes all of this hostility, all of these issues, that do not accept the openness of gathering all of God's people together and a place for all, even those that are disagreeable with us or we are disagreeable to them that somehow there is a plain path that we can gather together. That's where we find prayer. Because prayer at its basis is community with God. It is not coming to God with a wish list of things to check off. The content of prayer as suggested here is about justice. What can I do in my life to make things right. Now the text ends with a very strange verse. After it's all said and done, Jesus says, and yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The verses just before in chapter 17, Jesus is talking about the second coming. Be like the days of Noah, there is delay. Or like Sodom, and Lot. It even reminds us to remember Lot's wife who turned back, looked the other way. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? God is that woman that pursues with justice. We've seen that already. And the question is, will he find faith? Will he find trust? In our midst, when God Jesus returns, will he find justice? For that is his hope for us today.